official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. Well, my name is Ian, as Abby mentioned, for those of you who don't know me. I'm a part of the team here at Church at the Well, and it is good to be in church with all of you this morning. It's been a, it's been a nice summer, hasn't it, right? We've had some good weather. It's tomato season. Anyone a fan of fresh tomatoes? I eat lots of things out of season, like avocados don't even grow here in Vermont, so I have to eat them out of season. But tomatoes, the one thing where I'm like, only in the summer am I going to eat tomatoes because they're so good when they're fresh. Anyways, we're launching a new series this morning called Questions God Asks Us. Questions God Asks Us. And so I'm pretty excited to get this started this morning. And I thought I'd start by explaining and talking a little bit about why we are beginning this series. And so I kind of have three reasons why that I'd like to go through why, why we're doing the series of questions God asks us, where we're going to be looking at uh, passages of Scripture where either God or Jesus asks a question of us. And uh, the first uh, reason why we're going to be starting this series is that questions are an invitation into relational intimacy. Questions are an invitation into relational intimacy. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I'm a dad, if you can't tell by the dad bod or the dad jokes yet, Um, and I have a six-year-old daughter. Her name is Anaya, and she's just wonderful. Um, But questions, actually, I actually believe this as a father, that questions are actually probably the best way for me to connect with my daughter, Anaya. And so being intentional about the questions I ask her, being intentional um, about actually asking her questions and engaging her in that way, actually become an invitation into re- for connection and for relationship with her. Um, when I invite her to share something that's on her heart, and she does, and she knows that I'm listening, there's a bond that happens. There's something that takes place in that relationship that's meaningful. Uh, how many of you who are parents know what I'm talking about? You also know if, if you uh, ask your child a question like this, how is school today? What are, what are some of the ways in which the child might respond to that question? If you know a child, you don't have to be a parent to know because we have all been children at one point, right? How is that question typically answered? Fine. Fine, eh, 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 fine, right? You're not getting much. There's not, there's not much connection, bonding that's happening there. And so it's actually not only questions that are invitations into relational intimacy, but it's actually intentional questions, good questions, questions uh, that draw things out from the person whom you are connecting with. Uh, so rather than asking uh, your child, how is school today, you might ask, how was recess today? Could you tell me about someone that frustrated you on the playground, right? You might get a more detailed answer if you ask about that. Or um, tell, me, tell me about something specific that you learned today. Be, you, might, you might know something about what the child might be learning. They might have been learning about sea creatures. 
uh, and I was in kindergarten last year, and so they had a whole month where they're learning about sea creatures. Say, did you learn anything about sea creatures today? And you might get this whole spiel about how uh, electric eels are—they're not saltwater creatures; they're freshwater creatures, right? Um, and I was into all, all sorts of those things. And so uh, when we ask those questions intentionally, it's an opportunity to connect the rest of her life, the rest of her emotions then with me, right? And becomes this beautiful thing. And so God and Jesus ask a lot of questions in scripture. And there's lots of different reasons why, and there's lots of different types of questions. But I believe that primarily the reason that God asks us questions and Jesus asks us questions is because Jesus wants to invite us into deeper relationship with himself, deeper intimacy and relationship with God. So uh, the next two reasons why questions, uh, we're looking at questions God asks us is questions are provocations that lead to transformation, Questions are provocations that lead to transformation. Uh, another way to put that is questions are pathways to change. They're actually something that takes us off, can take us off the course we are on and put us on a new course, right? They can provoke us to change, to think about, to think about our lives, to think how we think about the world around us and how we think about God as well. Uh, and also, questions are a way of being reintroduced to Jesus, so I'm putting these two reasons why together um, because I believe that uh, there's a lot of energy spent in the church talking about the different ways that Jesus presented the good news of God's love, the gospel, right? We spend a lot of time in church looking at the teachings of Jesus. Uh, these, are, these are ways that Jesus, if you read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you read the gospels, you see, these are the way that Jesus communicated God's love and invited people to be changed, was there's teachings, and so we study things like this, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There are parables, right, that Jesus taught. We, we spend some time looking at the parables and inviting those parables to, to engage our hearts, right? And then we, we look at Jesus' healings and miracles and how that displayed the goodness of God's love and the gospel. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about and looking at Jesus's questions. But Jesus actually used questions as, a prime, as one of his primary ways of communicating God's love. And so if we were to open up, uh, open up the Gospels, we'll actually see that um, Jesus's leadership style uh, was rooted in asking incisive questions. Uh, the first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. The first words of Jesus, he's 12 years old. Jesus has gone missing. His parents do not know where he is. And his parents ask him, why have you, why have you done, when they find him, they say, why have you done this to us? Good question for a parent to ask when their child has gone missing. They're searching around frantically for him. And he responds with two questions, right? He responds with two questions. Why? Were you searching for me? And didn't you know I would be in my father's house? The, the very first words of Jesus recording the gospel were questions. And it actually, his parents found Jesus. Uh, it said he was teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. And it said that the crowds were amazed by the authority of his teaching and his questions. And his questions. Fascinating, right? So he spent a lot of time looking at his teachings, parables, healings, miracles, but not a lot of time looking at his questions. Jesus asks 
uh, around 300 questions in the Gospels. So if you're to take out the NIV and kind of circle where Jesus asks a question, there's 307. There's more or less because the NIV isn't the original Greek. Um, so it's more or less around 300 questions, and, and often they're kind of rhetorical in the rabbinic tradition of question asking. But Jesus, point is, Jesus asks a lot of questions. So this could be a little bit of a side note or some homework for you. This Sunday is to open up your, go- open up your Bible, turn to the Gospels, and uh, note wherever you see Jesus ask a question and ask this of these questions. What did Jesus ask? You, you can write this down if you're taking notes. Who did he ask? Why did he ask it? And where did he ask it? So some interesting things ask of Jesus's questions. Um, when Jesus was asked questions, he often responded with questions, right? So this is kind of typical in uh, the rabbinical tradition, right? In uh, the modern West, we think, very li- we think in very linear ways and very dualistic ways. And so two plus two equals four. But if you were to ask a rabbi, rabbi, what is two plus two? The rabbi would say something like this. What is 16 divided by four, right? And so Jesus, when he's asked questions, he often responds with more questions. Jesus understood this, that right questions not the right answers, were often uh, the way in which people were most influenced, in which people experienced change. And so that's why it's important to study uh, the questions that God and Jesus asks. And so if questions are an invitation to relational intimacy and transformation, studying the questions of God and Jesus is a way for us to get to know Jesus as a community, to be reminded that God cares enough to ask questions and listens, and that the intentional questions that God asks, that they can actually provoke us to transformation. They can provoke us to change. And so uh, this morning, we're actually going to be looking at a series of three questions Jesus asks. And so here are the three questions for you before we get to our text. Who do the people say that I am? This is in Matthew 16 as well, if you'd like to open up your Bible. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And what will it profit a person, or what will it profit a man if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Three provocative questions. So let's read these questions in their context. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, this is the NASB if you have your Bible app on your phone, uh, starting in verse 13 of chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, good job, Simon. You got the pop quiz right. 
Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Jesus has high praise for Peter and his answer here. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So which is it, Jesus? Is he blessed on Simon? On this rock, I will build my church. Or is he Satan? So he has some strong words. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So he's teaching, and then he asks this last incisive question. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? He rephrases it. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Finishing in verse 26. So his first question Jesus asks, who do people say I am? This is actually a question, before we get to the other two, that's central to who we are at Church at the Well. We talk about this a lot, right? Reintroducing Jesus in Vermont. And the heart behind that statement, or one of the reasons why we say that so often, is we know there are lots of ways Jesus has been misrepresented. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Right? By the church, by Christians, whoever it might be. There are many ways in which Jesus has been misrepresented. Um, let's, let's have a little uh, experiment, thought experiment together. What are some of the ways Jesus has been misrepresented by the church or by Christians? Y'all can shout it out. There's no right or wrong answer. You can be savage if you want. Just a good teacher? Yeah. Judgmental? Yeah. I'd say so, Right? I say if often people look at the church, they look at the life of, of particular Christians, they say, yeah, Jesus must be judgmental because that's the way that those people are. Any other ways, we, anything else we can think? Hypocritical. Hypocritical, okay, yeah, definitely. Small, yeah. Yeah, like Jesus fits in this nice, neat little box. Kind of, yeah. Narrow-minded, Closed, not open, not an expansive message, not inclusive, right? So there's lots of ways Jesus has been misrepresented. So we look at that first question, who do people say that I am? It's actually important to understand all of the ways in which Jesus has been misrepresented. And so it's important to ask that question. It's important to reflect on that question but that question is kind of 
stays in the world of deconstruction, right? So we have to move to the next question, right? Who do you say I am? Because we also believe this at Church of the Wall. I believe this. We believe that as we get to know who Jesus is, we are compelled by who he is. We're compelled by his love. We actually discover that those misrepresentations were, in fact, misrepresentations, right? That he's not small, he's big. That he's not narrow-minded, but open and inclusive. That he's not judgmental, but embraces us with grace and mercy where we are, right? Right, and so we move on to the next question. Who do you say I am? Uh, a quick story. I didn't grow up in church, so you can probably guess, because I'm up here right now and preachers preaching, that at some point I engaged this question, who do you say I am with Jesus? And at some point in my life, uh, uh, I became a follower of Jesus. And so I wanted to share a little bit about that story. I was in high school. I was uh, 18 years old. I didn't have any faith background. I didn't have uh, really much exposure to church, Christianity, or Christians much, but I had a friend in high school who was constantly pestering me. And I mean pestering me to go to the church. Hey, you come to church. Hey, you want to come to this church thing? And I was always saying no, right? Because that's what you do when people invite you to church and you don't, you haven't grown up in church, you say no. Uh, you people are weird. Why would I ever go to church? Um, but also, like everyone else always experiences at some point in their life, I was experiencing a lot of brokenness, a lot of heartache, a lot of pain in my life, and a lot of curiosity about the universe and who I am and whether or not God existed and God was real. So I called up my friend and I said, I would like to come to church with you this Sunday. And I got the most surprising answer. They asked if I could wait <laughs> and not go to church. And I was very confused because this person had been trying to get me to go to church for a long time. And this is how about the week after you can come to church. And I was like, no, like I am broken now. I, I don't know if I am going to find anything I'm looking for at church, but I, I want to try at least, okay? I want to at least try to, to find, well, I don't even know what, I, I don't even think I knew what I was looking for at the time, but I was like, no, I want to come this Sunday. So, okay, but I'm not going to my home church. And I found out that um, they didn't want me to come to church with them because they were visiting another church. It was in downtown Hilo, Hawaii, where I grew up. And it was called Love of Christ Ministries. And it was in a small hole in the wall, kind of almost a broom closet next to a Thai restaurant in downtown Hilo. And uh, I got dressed for church as best as I could. Um, remember, I was 18. I probably had, I probably was, I looked terrible, I imagine, but I tried. I probably found the only button-up shirt I had. I wasn't married at the time, so I didn't have a wife to tell me when I looked like a complete idiot. So I showed up to church, dressed, dressed up like I tried to dress up for church, and I immediately understood why they didn't want me to come to church with them that Sunday. The pastor was uh, I would say she was in her 80s. It was an 80-year-old woman and her husband. It was my friend and my friend's mother. And that was church that morning. Small hole in the wall, Hilo, Hawaii. And worship was 
a boombox, and the pastor with a tambourine, shaking that thing and looking right at the three other people in the room, asking them to sing along with them, saying, praise Jesus, right? And there was, there was definitely joy in the room, but it was certainly a new experience to me. I didn't, I didn't know. Uh, I can tell you what, it was the type of worship that made our little acoustic band, which is so beautiful and amazing, but it made it look like, like a big megachurch conference, like, like a Hillsong conference or a Passion conference or something like this. It was a boombox, this really old lady, and a tambourine. I obviously have no rhythm. Sorry, everyone. If someone wants to come up and shake that for me, you can. But I had a moment where I, there was an opportunity for me to engage this question, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And I bring up the strangeness of that story because it was in that church, in that place where I became a follower of Jesus, where I answered that question, where I engaged that question. I'm not sure I quite understood how I was answering it, um, but I do know that God met me in that place. And that's how Jesus, when Jesus, when Peter responds, Jesus responds to Peter. Je- Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, uh, Jesus responds to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I believe that my story was kind of just like Peter's, right? I had an opportunity, an environment, strange. There certainly was, I can tell you this, no flesh and blood who was doing the revealing to me in that moment. But it was God who revealed himself to me in the love of Christ's ministries in downtown Hilo. I think at one point during the service, a homeless person walked in and joined us for worship and walked out at some point. And so there's the 4.5 of us in the room that morning. And I believe this, that when we look at this question, when we engage this question, that the best thing we can do as a church is tell our stories and hopefully be a place where God's revealed. God can use our stories. They're important. Bringing up these questions are important. But the best thing we can do is just is... Uh, Rely on God to do the revealing. Takes a great deal of pressure off the preacher, I can tell you that. It's only by grace that we come to know Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit. And so we do declare, we do proclaim, we do embody the love of Christ, and we pray that God uses all those things to help others answer that question, who do you say I am? Uh, But we can't reveal Jesus as Lord And I do know this, that God is faithful to answer that prayer and to engage us in our prayers, even if we don't know how to pray, even if you're like me and you've never prayed before. um, Engaging this question, who do you say I am? Engaging it, pondering it, considering it who do you say I am, actually can be a form of prayer. A form of prayer. Engaging that question. Even if it's at a distance, even if we're not sure, 
That can be a type of prayer. And so I want us to ponder this question for a moment together. Who do you say I am? When we engage this, some of us might feel like we have an answer or answers. Some of us may have misrepresentations. We have a hard time getting past. And some of us probably don't want to engage that question at all. Here's what I like to say. God's okay with all of that. God's okay with all of it. God's not afraid of our doubts, questions. That's the beauty of the question. It's an invitation to all of us, wherever we find ourselves this morning, to engage it. And so I'd actually like to take a moment of silence, just a minute of silence, where we can actually just reflect and ponder this question, who do you say I am? Um, And I I think that God uh, might have something to say to all of us this morning, no matter where we might be in our pondering. Let's take a moment of silence. You can close your eyes or you can keep them open or look out the window, however you feel comfortable. Who do you say I am? The second question. Let's go to the last question. Will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? So I actually want to read the context for this again. From that time, this is after Peter's declaration and Jesus' blessing of Peter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This last question, this last question is interesting to me because it's actually an expansion of the first two questions about who Jesus is, even if we don't see the connection right away. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus answers, or Peter answers Jesus's Pop quiz, correctly. Jesus asks, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're Messiah, your Lord and Savior. And Jesus lavishes him with praise. Immediately after this conversation, Matthew records, Peter gets upset because Jesus challenges his idea of who Peter thought Jesus was. So he answered the question, you're the Christ, But Jesus is essentially saying to Peter, who I am as the Christ is a lot different than you think it is. It's an expansion of the first question. Jesus insists that who he is as Christ, who he is as Messiah, who he is as Lord and Savior, actually will lead him down a humble path to a cross. That the revolution Jesus is starting begins with sacrifice and suffering. It's as if if Jesus is telling Peter, yes, I am Messiah, but my kingdom, yes, I'm king, yes, I'm Lord, but my kingdom will be established through sacrifice and love, not through coercive force or violence. Peter doesn't get it, 
And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. Peter had an understanding of who Jesus was, but he also didn't understand that that understanding of who Christ was had implications for his life. Maybe it's because he didn't quite get it all at once, right? That who Jesus is as Christ is also connected to his suffering on the cross. And so Jesus invites us to know him by asking, who do you say I am? But this leads to this last question, which is a question about who we are, right? Who we are. What will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? This is where Peter missed it. He was holding on to his past identity. The way this question was answered didn't actually, it didn't actually provoke him to change or be transformed. We do know this about Peter. He was a zealot. When he was called to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, he was a zealot, which essentially meant that he held a political ideology that he would have been more prone to violence. And uh, at the time, in the ancient Near East, Israel was under the Roman authority, the Roman Empire, and Peter wanted a political revolution. And so his understanding of Messiah, Lord, was rooted in his identity as a zealot, someone who wanted to overthrow it. But his understanding of Jesus as Christ, he carried his own identity into it rather than letting his identity be shaped by not only Jesus as Christ, but Jesus as the suffering Messiah. And so in light of this, Jesus invites us to find our identity in him, which begins, this is the entry point to following Jesus, by taking the posture of a servant. It begins by committing our lives to sacrificial love. First pointing to declaring God's love revealed through Jesus on the cross. Then as Jesus says here, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus' questions provoke us to think about uh, what it would look like to find our identity in him. What will it profit a man? What will it profit a person if they gain the whole world, forfeit their soul? What Jesus is doing here with this question is not fear-mongering. He's actually, in, it's an invitation to the upside-down, life-giving nature of the kingdom of God. Not health and wealth promise, life from death. This is the entry point to following Jesus. This is a radical entry point. Take up your cross and follow me. When our identity is formed by the sacrifice of Christ, it's then we become our true selves. It's another word, another way you could define that word soul there in Matthew 16, true selves. We find freedom in Christ. And the beautiful thing about that is we find freedom in Christ even in our suffering even in our sacrifice. And that suffering in the life of a follower of Jesus actually then becomes redemptive. It becomes a redemptive force in the life of a follower of Christ. So I want to take you back to the boom box and the tambourine because that's actually, this is actually the text I was engaged with. Uh, my, my friend's mother shared just an encouragement from this. And the first words of Jesus that I heard were, pick up your cross and follow me. And I actually think there could be fewer perfect words to hear in a church gathering than pick up your cross and follow me because it's a radical invitation. 
And I actually think because it was such a radical minimum standard that that actually sustained me in my faith. We, we just spent, um, how many weeks did we spend in the book of Acts? Over 20. We spent over 20 weeks in the book of Acts. And often we think of the book of Acts as a series of extraordinary things by extraordinary people who are following Jesus and performed by, like, it's, it's like an account of the spiritual superstars, right? Spiritual superstars. That's how we think of the book of Acts. But the book of Acts is actually a story about really ordinary people committing themselves to picking up their cross and following Christ and living lives of sacrificial love for the world. This is the radical minimum standard. It's in there that God works and does extraordinary things. It's there. And so that's our invitation as a church. It's the same. It's the same invitation. So when we make our commitment to pick up our cross, follow Jesus, we realize uh, that, and I want to say this too, sorry. We don't seek suffering we're not about that. We don't seek suffering. We don't glorify suffering. But it's the path of sacrificial love uh, that leads us to joy and freedom in Christ. And so scripture calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter, who, and this is what scripture says of him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Uh, I want to close by reading a scripture verse uh, from 2 Corinthians 4, and Mark shared this with me earlier in the week in a time of prayer. Uh, those of you who don't know Mark, he's got the sweet Adidas hat on, and he's, he's our resident Gandalf, everyone. So if you're ever looking for the giver of wisdom, uh, I'd encourage you to seek out Mark there uh, with the Adidas hat. But he shared this verse during a time of prayer, and I think it beautifully captures uh, this idea that how we engage these questions of who we find Jesus to be as the suffering Messiah and the being invited to have our identity formed in Jesus, uh, about the God who Jesus reveals on the cross, and then be formed by that, uh, is that I feel like this scripture verse just captures it better than I could. So I'm going to conclude with it this morning. We do not, and this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. Identity, who do you say I am? And what will it profit a man, right? We see both of that there. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that sounds nice. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in our bodies, and we have this treasure Revealed to us, not by flesh and blood, not by tambourine or boombox, right? But we have this surpassing greatness of the power, of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted. We, we experience suffering, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. I'll start this sentence over again because we should get a big amen for this one. Caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Find our identity in the suffering Christ 
who is also the resurrected Christ, right? We're called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus and have our identity formed. And so we're asked all these questions, right? We're asked to engage all of these questions, but then, and it starts with picking up our cross and following Jesus, a radical minimum standard, but it's actually in that place where we find life, freedom, and our identity is formed in the resurrection of Jesus as well. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace and your goodness, that you are faithful to answer our prayers, even when our prayers are mumbles, even when our prayers are groans, even when our prayers are questions, Lord. I just pray that today you would continue to reveal yourself to us, who you are, your great love for us that surpasses all understanding would meet each and every one of us where we are, with all of our doubts, with all of our questions, with all of our brokenness, Lord. And may we hear you call us to pick up our cross and follow you. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your goodness and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community. 